Welcome to Hubstaff's Agency Advantage Podcast, hosted by Andy Baldacci. Each week, Andy interviews a successful agency owner who shares their proven strategies to help you build and grow your agency. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to episode number 62 of Hubstaff's Agency Advantage Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Baldacci, and today I'm talking with Blair Enns of Win Without Pitching, who shares his five rules for selling digital services. Blair is a 25-year veteran of the business side of the creative professions and has over 30,000 hours invested in the question, how do creative firms win new business without giving away work for free? He shares the philosophy behind his answer in his book, The Win Without Pitching Manifesto. And if you haven't checked that out yet, you definitely need to. That being said, today we're going to be less philosophical and more tactical as Blair shares these practical rules that, if followed, will simply put, make your agency more money. Not only does he share these rules, but we discuss where most agencies mess up and how you can get started turning things around. If you're tired of clients beating you up on price or expecting you to give away your best ideas for free, then this is the episode for you. So without further ado, here's Blair. Blair, thank you so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure, Andy. Happy to be here. Yeah, so you published the Win Without Pitching Manifesto back in 2010. I have my hardbound copy right in front of me now, and it's all earmarked. And honestly, if you're listening to the show and you haven't read that yet, check it out. It's a pretty quick read, but it really does lay out a philosophy that, simply put, just helps your agency get ahead. However, last year I caught your presentation on the five rules for selling digital, and I loved how you just put everything together in a really clear, concise, and actual way. So for this talk, Blair, I'd really love to go deep into that material. Yeah, that that would be great. That's a that's a great topic. Okay, absolutely. So to get started, just what are digital agencies doing wrong when it comes to pricing and selling their services? Uh, the biggest, the like, common mistake I see digital firms making, and it's not by no means are they all doing it. And there's certain if mm-hmm. if, if the if the digital firm is in the marketing automation space at all, either reselling somebody's or uh, services or advising on marketing automation, then they're really, they're much more prone to this mistake. And the mistake is that they, um, they, uh, they're, they're unconsciously moving from a, a customized service business to a productized service business. So mm. that's, it's fairly common. I'm, I'm not sure how common, but it's fairly common across digital firms. And again, it's, it's really common across firms who sell resell marketing automation. And I think the reason for it is that they're taking their pricing cues and other things that go with pricing, like mm-hmm. packaging up services from the, uh, from the, the partner organizations, the, uh, um, the software that they're reselling. So you see a lot of these digital firms, who are who kind of look like they're morphing into software businesses, and right. that's not a bad thing if it's a conscious decision. But but they're really um, customized services firms that are starting to productize their services and productize their pricing. That's probably the biggest mistake I make. And it's not again, um, you know, there are advantages of being a customized service firm where every client represents a blank slate of opportunities and every solution you cobble together is going to be unique and therefore the price is going to be unique. So that's how a customized service firm would approach the Mm -hmm. engagement and a a productized service firm. There are advantages to that too. infinite scale where you pack package things up and the sale is more transactional and the price is the price. 
Um, so it's really you want to be at one end of this. You want to be in one of those two camps. And what I see a lot of digital firms doing is kind of moving toward the mushy middle and they're not even sure why they're doing it. They're just kind of copying the wrong types of businesses. Yeah. And so is that main danger of having that kind of mismatch of productize and customization, and all that? Is it because when you productize the price, you're not able to really price the client? You're actually just yeah. doing the same thing. And when there's customized work, you're just not able to capture as much value as you could otherwise. Yeah, that's my first rule for pricing is to price the client, not the job. And so when you start to productize, you're really pricing the product. And that's usually priced on inputs. Um, sometimes it's just a function of market price. But you're, 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 you're not leveraging what's known as price discrimination. And mm -hmm. price discrimination, it sounds like a bad thing, but it's actually this wonderful idea that some people will pay more or can pay more and will pay more. Therefore, they should. Um, so you're leaving all kinds of money on the table by pricing the product and not the client. Now, in pursuit of infinite scale, that's just something that you have to accept. You essentially segment your your audience and you you essentially try to arrive at the right price points for the various product levels. And you don't worry about uh, the fact that you might be leaving some money on the table so much because you have so many different clients. Okay. Um, there's this advantage of scale. You don't have to worry about the kind of lost margin on a specific opportunity. But in a customized service business, really, regardless of the nature of the business or even the size of the firm, you really should have about 10 or 12 clients, ongoing mm -hmm. clients at any one time. There's all kinds of reasons for that. But so you just think on one end, if you've only got 10 clients, then uh, you want to make sure that those clients are profitable as possible. And on the product productized end of the spectrum, it's really not about it's it's a it's a game of scale. So you're not worried about leaving some money on the table for one client. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because this applies to not just the services business, but it applies to software businesses too. And it's funny because before the call, we were talking about HubSpot. And I was recently at a conference and Brian Balfour was speaking there. And he was talking about how if they had stuck with their original pricing scheme, the current HubSpot behemoth billion dollar company would still be on like the $50 a month plan. And if you don't allow yourself to have multiple price points for different types of clients, you really are, are setting yourself up for failure if you are also delivering vastly different services and value to them for those price points. Yeah. And that kind of speaks to the second rule of pricing, which is always offer options. Mm -hmm. So, and, uh, software as, as a service companies are really good at this. And I think a lot of, uh, and so there's always you know, a minimum of three options, and there's all kinds of studies been done that show that, you know, people want choice and uh, three choices are better than two for reasons we won't get into here unless you want to. <laughs> um, so uh, and then those choices can evolve and they can change. And regardless of whether yours is a productized service business or a customized service business, you always want to be putting options in front of your client. Mm -hmm. and, and right now, where does your business fall? It seems like you've switched almost entirely towards more of a productized training business, whereas before, if I'm remembering correctly, you also did offer some uh, more custom consulting engagements. Is that accurate? Yeah, Win Without Pitching used to be a consulting practice. <laughs> um, and so I'm a, I'm a reformed consultant about <laughs> three or four years ago. We trend, maybe it's five now to early 2013. We transitioned, um, 
we transitioned over to a, a training company in pursuit of scale. And uh, I was caught in the mushy middle. I was a I was a pro, I was a customized service business doing launch that launched a product, mm-hmm. a productized service. And um, it's they're really two different businesses. And it was a small firm at the time. It was as a solo consulting practice. It was me, a full time person, and a part time person. Um, but the you know so culture isn't so important. But as you grow, culture becomes really important. And the cultures of a productized service business versus a customized service business are entirely different. Your t- hiring is different. The cultures are different. Um, how you sell is different, et cetera. So yeah, as you accurately point out, we we used to be the one. Then we were in the mushy middle, and then we dropped consulting, and we're a full blown training company. But even then, I. I realized when I started to get into pricing and and then subsequently the notion of a productized service business versus a customized service business, um, I realized that even when I was a consultant, I was kind of moving towards that mushy middle. I had mm-hmm. these pre-packaged offerings and I uh, the price was the price regardless of who the client was. So I was, I was violating the uh, the first rule of pricing, and that is price the client. When I realized I was violating this rule, um, I felt I had to make a decision. If I, I either needed to become a full-blown, proper, value-priced consultant, mm-hmm. or I needed to become a full-blown, productized training business. And I chose the productized training business for a couple of reasons. The primary one is my location. I live in a remote mountain village in the middle of nowhere in British Columbia. And I, I felt like if I, to be a full, to be a proper consultant where I'm charging huge amounts of money right. based on the value I'm delivering, I needed to have engagements where I could say to my client, okay, when we're talking about an issue, I could say, okay, I'll, I'll be there tomorrow. Or mm-hmm. I'll be there the day after tomorrow. And we'll, or later this week and we'll figure it out. And, and where I live, it takes me a day to get anywhere right so it's that's kind of hard to do so i i was forced to go down the other road and not that either of them like both of them are viable both of them, mm-hmm. there's no there's no right, right or wrong way to do this the wrong way to do this is to get caught in the middle and to be a quad a quasi productized customized service business interesting one of the other things that i think leads into another one of the rules which is differentiate or die is that when I look at your offering, no matter what it has been, no matter when you were in the middle between the fully value-based and the productized, you still always did have very clear positioning. And right now, just looking at your training program, the Win Without Pitching training program, it says you provide creative firms with an infrastructure to build a stronger systematic business development machine that puts firms on a trajectory to generate higher margin revenue. So there's a lot of new business development agencies, trainers, courses, whatever out there. But you have with your book, with your branding, with all of that stood out. And so why is having such a strong stance? Why is that differentiation so important? Yeah, that's a great question i'm really glad you phrased it that way it's it's um there's you think of positioning as three legs to a stool and most of the time when people are talking about positioning they're only talking about the first two and the first two are discipline it's discipline and market so what do you do and who do you do it for and if you combine those two together you can we use the word focus to describe those two elements together. So when we say, what's the focus of the firm? We mean, what do you do and who do you do it for? Mm-hmm. So, well, 
you know, well-positioned firms build these kind of niche businesses where they go narrow into usually one of those two variables, either a narrow discipline or a narrow market. Um, but the third leg of the stool and answer your question, why has, why does win without pitching continue to stand out is after you arrive at focus, then you need to move to the subject of perspective. What is your overarching viewpoint on how this mm -hmm. discipline for market should be done? And, uh, the perspective of our business is right there in the name, right? right. So there are other business development consultants, there are other sales training organizations. I don't know if there are other sales training organizations specifically for creative businesses, but if there are or when they when they um, come along, they're probably not going to have that perspective. And the perspective is essentially we really don't believe that you need to do this by pitching your best, uh, your most valuable product, your, your thinking, by giving it away for free. <laughs> and uh, I think it's a, you know, that's served us well. Like, A, I fundamentally believe it and everybody on my team fundamentally believes it. it's not a moral issue that free pitching is bad it's a competitive advantage issue that if you have to if you're in this position where you have to give your thinking away for free that's a symptom of all kinds of other things you're doing wrong so we believe that and other people talk about it from time to time but you can see the others the other consultants in the space they don't actually believe it they don't right. actually believe that it can be done where to us it's just look we just don't see another way we know there's another way because we've all been there mm -hmm. we've all done it the other way so it's nice to have a perspective so that's if you think of focus discipline for market when you narrow your firm along those lines you go from hundreds or thousands of direct competitors to a very small number it might be three or four it might be a dozen or a couple of a dozen and then the way you differentiate yourself um, from those few remaining competitors is through your perspective, your overarching point of view on how this discipline mm -hmm. for market should be done. So it, to that extent, think of it as two battles. The first battle is to, is to, is to winnow down the competitors to kind of a nice manageable number. And you do that through focus. And the second battle, the, the more fierce battle between you, you and your direct few remaining direct competitors, you want to make that battle one of ideology. Right. Mm. Because your clients are, you know, if they're deciding between you and somebody else who also does X for Y, they are ultimately most likely to make their decision based on what you believe. So it's back to Simon Sinek, who says, I always get this quote wrong unless I'm reading it. <laughs> it's not you're not looking for people who want to buy what you have to sell. You're looking to sell to people who believe what you believe. Mm -hmm. So the final battle line is a battle of ideology. And if somebody doesn't fundamentally believe that you can or you have this right to win without pitching, then they're not they're never going to hire us. They're going to go somewhere else and, and hire another consultant or join another training program. Right. And it's funny because when you talk about the ideology, the belief, it's like you literally put out a manifesto. So there's no question, what are your beliefs? Do you, what do you stand for? What is your opinion on how to approach this? You've published it. You, you've made it clear yeah. what those beliefs are. Yeah, we've nailed our thesis to the church door, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. But so how has doing this, how has differentiating yourself like this, how has that changed the power in the relationship between yourselves and the client? 
Well, I mean, it's always been there right from the beginning, and it was the way that I kind of stumbled upon sailing, selling when I did uh, business development for ad agencies and then design firms. So not, it changes the power. Yeah. I, yeah. So maybe yeah, maybe not for you, but maybe for for other yeah. for when you've when you've worked with our agencies and you see their relationship with the client, where the client has all of the power. How does differentiating help them get some of that power back? Well, p- power, as you know, from the first proclamation of the the book, it's really about uh, the whole sale, and then it comes down to power dynamics. And I don't mean to overplay this. I have a high need for power, so I have a tendency to overstate these things. But there's a valid research that backs this up. It, the entire sale comes down to power dynamics. And I fundamentally believe that um, uh, after the sale, the, re- you sh- the goal of the sale is to, A, convert a prospect to a client, but B, to do so with you in the practitioner practitioner position where you're seen as the expert practitioner in more of a practitioner client or practitioner patient relationship rather than a vendor and i maintain mm-hmm. that you're better off not winning the business at all than you are winning it from a vendor position so if we if we take that as a fundamental truth and i believe that that's kind of the fundamental truth of selling expertise of any kind and selling the win without pitching away the first principle is the party that desires the engagement the most has the least amount of power so from that statement two things kind of Everything that we talk about, we would have you do fall branch off of uh, fall into two different branches. And one is to be as desirable as you can. And you do that through all your marketing, et cetera, and through how you behave. And the other one is to the other uh, statement is to be as uh, least desirous if uh, uh, to uh, to desire. Yeah. Is that it? To be as least desirous as possible to 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 need the client to want and need the the engagement less mm-hmm. than the uh, than the client. That's a real cumbersome way of saying. <laughs> yeah, it all comes down to power dynamics. And just think of it this way: you are in the sale. You are either seen as the practitioner or you're seen as the vendor. Mm-hmm. And so, almost everything that we have you do before the conversation and during the conversation is about maintaining that power position where you are seen as the expert practitioner. And then once once you are, then every then everything changes. I can distill the entire win without pitching uh, approach into two steps. The first one is get power through positioning. And the second step is to leverage power to change the way your services are bought and sold. And so the, the, mm. the people who, who might be listening or have read my stuff before or heard me from a stage and kind of sit there like squinting and with their arms crossed and they're thinking, yeah, nice theory, but it's never going to work. It's, they believe that because they've never actually had power in their relationships. They've always been seen as a vendor. They've always acted as a vendor because fundamentally they believe that what it is that they're selling is not all that meaningfully different from the alternatives available to the client. So if they've never experienced what it's like to be treated as the expert, what it's like to be granted some freedom in the sale to do things differently, um, then they're not going to believe this is possible. And I think this ties in very closely to one of your other rules, and that's getting paid to scope because this is something that I've talked to so many agency owners, consultants, whatever about, and so many of them say there's 0% chance anyone would ever pay me to scope a project out. That's just what I assumed I have to do for free. So how how are you able to work with clients and get paid to scope? 
That it's funny that somebody. I I mean, I'm chuckling. I've got a big smile on my face if somebody thinks, yeah, nobody would ever get paid. As, I could I could point you to hundreds of firms and uh, many dozens, over a hundred digital firms that I know that get paid to scope and think the idea of not getting paid to scope is absurd. It's just absolutely ridiculous. Why would they, why would they begin solving the problem, the client's problem before they're engaged? Um, you, you just think of almost all of your professional relationships. You pay the other professional to scope. You pay mm -hmm. the accountant to get in a sense of your situation. You pay the lawyer for discovery, et cetera, et cetera. There's, there's every professional gets paid to um, almost every pay, professional gets paid to scope, except the ones that are worse than those in the design profession, design and everything. And that would be architects. They don't get paid to scope, but they could. The better ones could. <laughs> and so it's funny because when you do put it that way, when you do work with agencies who have got figured out, who do have have leveraged those power dynamics and I don't even know if it's that it's just, if they're able to charge for their time like that, it does seem insane that others aren't able to, but so how do you work this in? If, if you're working with an agency who currently is doing some discovery, they're doing a lot, a bit of scope upfront without cost. How do they get started transitioning into a way that they can actually charge for that? Yeah. So yeah. So um, this might seem to violate the rule of of productizing if you're a customized service firm, but you really should productize or package up your diagnostic. So when you're having a conversation with a prospect about you know their challenge, and they say, "Well, okay, so like, what what would you charge us to come in here and and fix this or work with us on this?" Um, in a complex situation where you've got to do some work to scope it out first to answer that question, you need to charge. And the way you charge but is in a situation like this, you would say, well, um, before I can give you a price, there's the first step that we have to take. And it's called X. It's called a you know, digital marketing audit where we come in and we look at all of these different things. We look at the objectives. We look at the competitive set, whatever it is. We look at your mm -hmm. the technology you're using. We look at the brand, whatever all the very the, – economic environment, whatever the variables are. And then we make an assessment of what needs to be done and uh, how we would do it. And then we present some options to you on how you can engage us to kind of capitalize on the opportunity as we see it. And that looks like, so it takes this long, three weeks, it costs this much, $10,000 or whatever it is. And, and here's the name of it. So that's the first step. And it's a logical first step. And the client, it needs to be priced in a way so that the client sees themselves getting value, even if they chose, choose not to hire you for the subsequent step. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. You're not trying to put something together just to get money from them for money's sake. You are actually trying to give them something that is worth what they're paying you while also compensating you for your time. Is that accurate? Yeah. You're, you're, um, you're getting paid to write a proposal. You're getting paid to understand their situation, um, and put together a solution that not the solution itself, but a path to a solution. And to do that, especially when there's any technology involved, as there is with digital firms, um, there's some work required to do. And so that's not work that you should be doing for free. And if the client's really serious, then they should consider engaging you to uh, to take that first step with you. And then once that you do deliver that, what what will your findings look like? What will the, will it just be a simple proposal or how do you typically recommend people structure this? Um, I've heard it called roadmap or whatever you want to call it. How do yeah. you think that should be structured? 
Well, think of all of the ridiculous things that go into the free written proposal. I say the ridiculous simply because uh, they're done for free, right? So mm -hmm. all of the things here, background, here's your situation. Here's what we know about all of these things based on things that you've told us through our structured interviewing and input process and other things that we've, information that we've gone out and gleaned and our past experience, et cetera. So here's a situation. Here's what we think we should do. And you can look at it in, in terms of a, like a, a medical relationship metaphor. So diagnosis, here's what we found about your situation, the environment, the competitive opportunity, et cetera. And then um, prescription, here's what we think you should do. And in your prescription, the second rule of pricing is always offer options. So here's a strategy. Here's what we think you should do at a kind of a high level. Here are three different ways that you can engage us at three different price points to help you pay off on this strategy or pursue this strategy. Um, and you want to make sure that when you're presenting your findings and recommendations for the diagnostic phase, I call mm -hmm. it the diagnostic phase, but includes the prescription as well. Those are never separated. Okay. So the first phase is always di diagnosis and prescription. So when you're presenting your findings, diagnostic findings, and your prescription, your strategic recommendations, you present three options. And again, you want to make sure that you're viewing this as a closing meeting. So all of the things that you would do in a closing meeting, like get all the decision makers in the room, um, overcome any price objection in advance, and a few other lesser important variables, you would make sure those are in place. So that you're able to facilitate the next steps in that closing meeting. And so are you presenting this at – do you give it to them before you get on the phone, before you're in person? Or is it all done like you jump on Skype for you or I guess I'm guessing it would be Skype. But for others, if, if you're going to the office, do you bring it then? Do you send it to them before or, or how does it actually – how does that closing meeting look? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, you – Generally speaking, you never want to be in a position where you're lobbing a proposal in over over a fence and then waiting to hear back or you're leaving a proposal uh, behind after a meeting and you're waiting to hear back. Now, generally speaking, you're trying to avoid those two situations. So if the meeting is remote via Skype or some sort of desktop sharing web meeting, then you wouldn't send it in advance. You'd get all the parties uh, online and then you would send it and then you would pull it up and you would review it. Okay. And that, that's, if, if you're going to, if you're going to do a written proposal and you should, there's some nuance here, you shouldn't, if you do a written proposal, unpaid written proposal, it shouldn't be more than one page. But if you're going to do an unpaid written proposal where you haven't sold the first phase diagnostic, then you absolutely, you, you own that. The, the piece of paper that you're going to share, you've created it, you own it. They don't, they don't have any right to it. So you you um, wait till you get all the decision makers, then you share it. And and uh, ideally, you and this you know this gets a little. We're getting a little nuanced here, and there's some power play dynamics. But you could be in a situation where you share it via your desktop, and then you decide for whatever reason that you know what no the meeting's over. They're not going to go ahead, and they don't get a copy of this. Right, because they haven't they haven't paid for it. Yeah, they haven't paid for it. They haven't stood. They haven't, you know, maybe they, the CMO committed to having the president in the meeting and he didn't bring the president wants to proceed. And your sense is that he's, he doesn't view you as the expert. He's kind of playing you as a vendor and you don't want to, you don't want to enable his search as he goes off and 
talks to three or four of your competitors by giving them a proposal. You don't want to be what's known as the rabbit, the, the, mm-hmm. the person that's kind of, uh, that they're benchmarking everybody else against. So in that situation, you might decide that, you know what, okay, sorry, the meeting's over. I don't think it's going to make, make sense to work together. And you haven't sent the document. You pull it off your desktop and they ask you for a copy of it. And you could just politely say, yeah, you know what? I, I don't think it's my, in my best interest to share it with you. We're not, I mean, it's pretty clear we're not going to work together and I'm, I'm really not in the interest. I'm not interested in giving, you know, handing something over that's just going to allow you to kind of force a better price out of a, another firm. I mean, you, you can just say that, right? One right. of my rules is say what you're thinking, say it early, say it with kindness. I'm not trying to be, um, uh, oh, mean about it, but it's, and some people might be listening to this thinking, what are you, are you <laughs> kidding me? I'm not kidding you. In certain situations, you would say that somebody's trying to take advantage of you, or you felt like they're not living up to their commitments. Basically you get the decision makers together and I'll put together a one page proposal on how we would move forward. They didn't live up to their end of the agreement. There's no reason why you have to leave that document with them. So in certain situations, you want to make sure that you haven't sent it ahead and, and you're not leaving it behind. And I've back in my own agency career days, I walked out of meetings. I can remember one in particular where I reached across the table and ha- very slowly pulled back the piece of paper that I had given to the client and put it back into my folder. And uh, I forget what I said exactly, but it was pretty clear we weren't going to work together. And I just thought, okay, well, y- you don't get to keep that. <laughs> So this isn't this isn't necessarily a power play to try to get them to to come back to you down the road and this or that. It's really just almost more moralistically, you morally you don't want to if they haven't honored their side of the agreement, the agreement's done with and, and you're not you're gonna take back what is yours. Yeah. There are lots of great metaphors for selling. Like change management is a great one. You can study change management. You'll become a better salesperson. Leadership is another one. And parenting is one too. And I often you know, say to my clients, well, you let, your, you let your client or the prospect get away with that behavior, but would you let your kids get away with that behavior? Right? So okay. that might work for some people. It might not work for others. But a classic example is um, – Client doesn't return your, or a prospect. You're working closely with the prospect and you're, there's kind of this respectful relationship. You're doing something for them. They're doing something for you. And together you're doing this dance to figure out whether or not it makes sense to work together. And then at some point, and everything's progressing nicely, then at some point the prospect goes dark on you and he doesn't return your phone calls. And so our tendency is to, is to plaster. And I was taught this. You plaster this make, fake smile on your face and you – you leave the third voicemail saying, hey, just checking in, hoping everything's okay. And I had a client once, um, he he left a, uh, I think it was the second voicemail message that he left for a prospective client. And it, he said, hey, um, I haven't heard back from you on this in a little while. And I'm just wondering if this is how you're treating me before we're working together. I'm wondering how you're going to treat me once we start working together and then the client, the prospect called him immediately and apologized, but it was so, you know, sometimes it makes sense to call people on their behavior and, and do it politely. There's no malice here. It's not power play for the sake of power play. It's just think of, you know, how would, how are these, how would these other, how would you behave in these other relationships in your life and the other professional relationships 
or even the personal relationships with your children or your spouse. And so a lot of it seems like it's being consistent. It's cultivating that mindset, even if doing these types of things isn't necessarily some power play or to try to get better results down the road with this specific client or anything like that is really just trying to cultivate the mindset and the attitude that this is how you want to conduct yourself. This is how you want to conduct business. And if people don't want to fit into that, that's their problem. Yeah. I think that's a great way of looking at it. We, we uh, Two of the buzzwords for the last decade or so that drive me nuts are authenticity and transparency. And I don't know why authenticity drives me nuts. It's like we <laughs> people just woke up one day and said, hey, it's actually kind of important to be authentic. <laughs> and so we spent a lot of time talking about you know what your mother taught you in the first five years of your life, which I find a little bit ridiculous. But in the spirit of authenticity and transparency, I'll be talking to a client who who will be frustrated about how they're being treated by a prospect or a client in the sale or afterwards. And I'll say, well, did you say that to the client? No, mm-hmm. no, I would never say that. to the client. Well, why don't you just say what you're thinking? So that's a that's a core. That's one of the core values of our company when without pitching but we we say what we're thinking it's called kind ruthlessness we're uh kind in our words but we're ruthless in our behavior we uh if if there's something that needs to be said we say it we say it early and we say it with kindness and we advocate that our clients in the training program do the same thing and it's one of the five rules for um selling digital is that just just say, if I had a magic wand, I could make you say what you're thinking in the sale. I would make you think what you're saying. I was sorry. I would make you say what you're thinking. Did that come naturally to you? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know that it came naturally to me. I think I saw the power of it over time. I think really I was struck by how I was taught to sell to the extent that I was taught at all, like growing up in uh, professionally in, in design firms and ad agencies, where I saw how we sold. And there's almost like this, 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 this uh, duplicitousness, I guess this, like mm-hmm. we would behave one way to prospects and we would behave another way to maybe another way to clients and another way to everybody else. And that just struck me as insincere and wrong. What, why don't we just all say what we're thinking? And we were, I had a, had a team meeting this morning and uh, one of our senior coaches, she leads a weekly focus call. It's a, it's a conference, a weekly focus call, a weekly conference call for all of the firms in our program. And, and she was talking about just that point today, say what you're thinking. And we were kind of, we were, we were jokingly talking about, you know, what I call the rain man approach to selling, which is say what you're thinking and say it in that Dustin Hoffman voice. (laughs) No, that's a really stupid idea. No. (laughs) And if you could just repeat that over and over again, now it's a little bit, uh, that's a little bit dangerous. You want to say what you're thinking, but you want to pause for just a minute so that you can find the kind and proper right. words to say it. And the challenge, the resentment builds and the emotions build and the frustration builds and the stress builds when you don't say what you're thinking, right? When mm. you bottle it up, you bottle it up, you bottle it up, and then you drop the fake smile and you lash out to somebody. You say something really hurtful or do something inappropriate. So if you just say what you're thinking all of the time, 
um, that's a great muscle to develop. And d- did it come naturally to me? No. But when I'm not saying what I'm thinking, it's really – there's like a little bit of pain uh, in my gut if I'm not saying what I'm thinking. So it's just kind of a muscle I think you develop over time. Right. It's something that you quickly saw people weren't doing this and you saw the effects of it. And even yourself, when you don't do it, you feel the effects of that. So you've developed the ability to more easily say what is on your mind. Yeah, stress is caused by the things you don't do. Mm. That's a good way of putting it. And so for the, this last one, I don't have a good transition, so we're just going to go for it. The last rule that, that we, you talked about before was that most clients would prefer to lease instead of buy. Can you speak to that one? Yeah, and that's a rule. I don't know if it's specific to digital firms, but when I'm talking to digital firms, I always insert that one. So if you think of... Um, you know, you think of how clients buy software these days, and you would know all about this. In the beginning, it was desktop software, and mm-hmm. it was kind of a one, it was a one-time purchase price, and you used that software until it was like out of date. Then you bought the newer version, um, and now, and for a few years now, software is purchased largely, almost exclusively, but not exclusively, on a per on a per seat basis, right? So the way clients budget for software has changed. And so for website development work in particular, anything to do with the website, uh, clients would much rather pay a monthly amount than they would kind of like a one-time capital expense Mm -hmm. uh, for a website. So it it used to be you you spent X, you know, $50,000 or whatever the number was for your website. And then that website was good for three or four years, right? And then three or four years later, it's kind of out of date. It's probably out of date after about three years. And the fourth year, you budget 55000 or whatever the amount is. And it used to be that way with software. That's changed. Now clients – and come on, what are websites? The customized software. Right. Clients would prefer to buy – pay for their website and a lot of their marketing services that way. So uh, I, it's one of the constraints I talk about in that, in that lecture – um, five rules for selling digital. If if I could if I could take away through via my magic wand, if I could take away your ability to sell, and so you could only lease or license, I guarantee you you would be more profitable. I guarantee you. I've had uh, remember a few years ago I had a client in the training program. She was saying, oh, I've got this prospect. He won't spend fifty thousand dollars on a website. In the end, he he committed to three thousand dollars a month for three years. <laughs> so that's way more right. than $50,000. He just wanted to pay for it differently. Mm-hmm. Right. And when you're delivering a, a project price like that, like we'll just go with a website example. Are you simply shifting the payment terms or are you delivering something different? Well, it's a good question and it could be both, right? Okay. If you think of what the value you're delivering is you should be, Part of the value proposition should be, you know, don't don't worry about uh, if you want to pay us monthly on an ongoing basis, we will take responsibility for making mm. sure that the website is always current in terms of technology. Um, we, you can also price in an option where you're updating the design every so often, every six months or every 12 months. And you, those variables and the durations would they would change depending on the client because you're pricing the client. So you might have a client where you put together a um a monthly payment over three years and there's a site 
redesign every six months. It might include vetting ongoing technology and making recommendations on a monthly basis on changing plugins, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Um, you might include all kinds of CRO or SEO or, or other things. So the product could be different or it could just be terms. But I think I think we should think about it as the product being different, as what the client is buying is a different level of relationship yeah. rather than a different type of relationship and a different way or different ways of delivering value than simply amortizing the cost mm -hmm. of the website over months. Yeah, I actually had Luke Summerfield from HubSpot on the program a while back, and his big thing that he's working on uh, training agencies to do is what he calls growth-driven design. And yeah. he, comes, he comes from the argument that putting up a website that just stays the same for a few years isn't even doing it's, – it's not doing your clients the right service. You're not giving them that much value in that with the way the web works today, it needs to be an ongoing investment in that growth-driven design is something that helps the agency increase the value of the relationship with the client. It helps them with cash flows, helping all that, but it also helps the client in the end. So if anyone's listening to this and has questions about how to specifically do that for web design, check out that episode. But Blair, I wanted to ask, how do you and your team actually work with agencies today to help them improve the way they sell? So the Win Without Pitching training program is an ongoing training and coaching program. It's available to um, creative entrepreneurs, so owners of independent creative businesses and their teams. So it's got to start with the owner because we start with positioning. And it's an ongoing program. The minimum commitment in terms of time is one year. And there's three years of what we consider to be core curriculum. So wow. it's not come in, get some training and right. get out. We're... I'm really trying to build the Hotel California where you you can check out, but you can never <laughs> leave. The, the idea is I want to keep providing enough value so that people keep going in the program as long as we have content and curriculum for them. And we've got three years right now. So it's a minimum commitment of a year. Um, there's three different ways right now, and that might change in the future, but there's three different ways you can go through the program. You can go through it as self-direct level where um, you get the training materials and it's paced. It's uh, three 12 week terms throughout the year. So you get the material, it's paced and you get access to all kinds of other content. The second level is the most common one. And that's the peer group level level where you're put into a virtual class with four or five other firms that mm -hmm. are like yours, but different and geographically dispersed. So we manage for conflicts. Okay as well. And that's led by a coach. So you've got one-on-one -on -one coaching time, you've got classroom time with your coaches and peers, and then you've got the training time on your own. And then the third level is for the larger firms or firms with a, ge a greater geographic distribution. That's a private class. It's basically you're, you're buying up the classroom, all the classroom time. So uh, the only other people in the class are other people from your firm. So those are three different levels. They range from about $500 a month on the low end to uh, $2,500 a month on the, on the high end. Mm -hmm. What do you often hear as a primary objection that someone would have to joining the course? Like, What usually do you see stopping people from signing up? Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks for asking it. And it's um, – Sometimes it's I'm not ready, <laughs> which I think it's, people say, oh, we're not ready. We've, we've got to get some things in order. Um, we begin at the beginning. The entire first year of the program, there's 
a bunch of stuff on sales training and we call it a sales training program for creative entrepreneurs. But we, in the first year, the focus is really on putting in the foundational elements, building a foundation that allows allows you that makes it easier for you to sell. So all that stuff that you think you need to get ready, get your positioning down, you know, get some lead generation underway. We we walk you through that and we have a framework for walking you through it and for having having you develop it in the first year, including intellectual property out of which we build these really cool sales tools. So that's the first one is I'm not ready. And the second one is uh, I don't have time. Yeah. I as the principal don't have time. And you know that's that's a more valid one, but I like to say, you know, if you don't have, okay, you don't have time, is that a short-term problem that you've just had over the last six months because of something's come up, unexpected has really come up, or is this a chronic issue? And if it's a chronic issue, my advice is, well, do it anyway. If it, if it makes sense on the other levels to do it, and the only thing is you don't have time, do it anyway, because we, I, I like to joke, we create time. And the way it works is you get into this rhythm and that's one of the things I really like about the format is the discipline that comes from the rhythm of this is training week. Okay, this is classroom week. This is training week. And you have to carve out some time on your calendar. And it's generally two hours, two to four, maybe as much as four hours on the high side. But it's generally around two hours a week. If you can carve out two hours a week, what happens in the first few weeks, it's really hard. And you're wondering how are you going to find not everybody, just the people who are pressed right. for time. Wondering how are you going to fit this in? And then somewhere around the six week mark, you find that you've created the habit where you're now creating time to work on the business through the program and not just in the business. Mm -hmm. So those are the two big ones, I think. I'm not ready and I don't have the time. That's interesting. And it's, it's funny because I, those are things you hear in any sort of training industry as well. And especially when it comes to service businesses the time issue is huge because so many times the agency owner is spending all of their time putting out fires, delivering all the work, just doing everything because they're for dozens of different reasons. And so once you are able to start building a real foundation around your business and start freeing yourself up to work on the business, that time then compounds because you're just building a much more efficient business that really can partly run without you. And it's funny because like you said, yeah, around the six week markets is once you start putting those efforts in, you really can see how your schedule is changing for the better. Yeah. I, you know, on, uh, under this kind of topic, I think I, I had a, bit of a revelation last week, a frustrating moment with a client where I was saying to my wife, who's my business partner afterwards, I said, you know, it's, it's incredible how many, the, the, the firms that do struggle in the program, it's incredible that the, they're struggling because they don't have a framework for running their business. Right. There are these creative people who started like Michael Gerber from the author of the E-Myth <laughs> says, there are these technicians who have an entrepreneurial spasm and they create these <laughs> businesses. And then some of them succeed to remarkable levels without ever having like figuring out how to actually manage a business. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm working with a you know really successful firm over the years, but you crack it open and you look at it, and it's just there's just no there's no management framework. Like in our business, we use a we use entrepreneurial operating system EOS, and I think back to the days before we had any. And, you, and I'm not advocating for this one. There's all kinds of frameworks out there, but if you, if you don't have one. 
if if you don't have a go-to source for you know how you structure roles, how you manage meetings, how you delegate, how you the things that you how you focus on the things that you should be focusing on, how you hire the right people mm-hmm. and get them in the right seats, etc. If you don't have a framework for that, like I, I, I how are you still in business? Right. I, I don't think we would be. No, it's just through, through grit, putting up with a lot of stress. It's not a good way to be in business, but it's something that you see all the time because so many agency owners are what I like to call accidental agency owners. They they got into freelancing yeah. because they wanted the freedom. They enjoyed doing the work. And then a few years down the road, they look around. They had a few employees and didn't really know what they were doing. They're probably making even less money, working more hours. And it's, yeah. I, I was going to ask what some good actionable advice is for how to get started making these changes. I think this is honestly probably it is, is – First step before you're ready to make any of these changes is make sure you have a framework for just how you approach the business so that changes like these down the road are actually possible. Yeah, adopt a framework for how you run the business. So this Mm -hmm. is like way beyond, way more foundational than how you run new business development. If you don't have a framework for how you're running the business – then like we're, we're a win without pitching. We're proposing to build on top of that framework. And when that framework isn't there, it gets a little bit troublesome. And the second thing I would say is um, ask yourself, what are you as an individual no longer going to do? Like we facilitate that question mm. as a business. What are you as a business no longer going to do? But what are you as a business owner no longer going to do? Because as the time goes by, you take on more and more things, but you really need to be ruthless about the things that you're, no longer going to do there's i'm fond of saying there's there's two levels of success in business and the tools that get you to the first level are the tools that impair your ability to get to the second level the first level of success that all of your clients and most of your listeners would be at which is like validation okay i'm earning right. money the clients are paying us we've we've got a business here you, you get and you know beyond that i'm paying myself i'm earning more than i would earn in a job etc so that first level of success you get there through a uh, hard work, so mm-hmm. effort, and saying yes to pretty much everything. And that's the key to the first level of success. But the second level of success, those two things get in your way because the very the highest level of success really comes down to uh, – it's not hard work. It's what I would call innovation, which is a combination of kind of creativity, the ability to see opportunity, and risk-taking. So it's innovation or risk. Mm. It's like, okay, we're going to go, we're, I'm going to bet the entire business and go in this direction. So it's that. And then it's not effort. It's, uh, to quote Warren Buffett, the difference between successful people and really successful people is really successful people say no to almost everything. So what are you no longer going to do as an individual? What are the, th- what are the very small number of key things that you should be doing that multiply the business? And then how are you going to get rid of everything else? I love that. And honestly, I, I like to ask all my guests a few rapid fire questions at the end. And this ties directly into that. So what was the most recent thing that you decided you're not going to do anymore? Coach. Okay. And then what? If I run a tra- training and coaching organization and I decided that I'm no longer going to do it. So I've dropped my classes. I have two private clients left. And when I'm done with them later this year, I, I will be solely focused on I realize I've been focused on the wrong people. I've been focused on a small group of our clients while my mm-hmm. other coaches focus on the other clients. I need to focus on my coaches and my CEO duties. So I focus on my people and they take care of our clients. 
Interesting. So what will that look like at, for your day to day? Like what will you then be spending more of your time doing? Is it is it lead generation type stuff like marketing tasks and management or, or what will that actually look like? Yeah, there are four things that I should be doing. I should be writing books. I should be doing podcasts. I'm launching two podcasts of my own this year. Um, I should be doing speeches and I should be taking care of the most important relationships in the business. And that's my people. Mm -hmm. And then a very high level, high level relationship with more clients. Interesting. And I I love how everything else is a distraction. Yeah. How, how do you have like a process where you review things regularly? Like how did you have so much clarity with that answer? Uh, the clarity comes from making the shift from a con- from a consulting practice to a training business at the age of 47. So a consulting practice isn't really a business. I mean, it kind of sort of is, but it's not really. So I felt like I got into business for myself for the first time at 47 and I, you know, at such an advanced age, at least for starting your first real business, um, I just felt like I don't have time to screw this up. So I access a lot of other resources. EOS, I'm a member of Strategic Coach, which is a fantastic coaching program for entrepreneurs. Um, those two things work together nicely. I read a lot about um, entrepreneurship and management and listen to, I probably listen to more podcasts than I, than I read, but it's just so clear to me. And you know, in win without pitching, we always start with positioning and focus and getting rid of the things, these other distracting things that are keeping you from, you know, what you're really best at. So that's just a principle that Mm -hmm. I try to apply to uh, uh, my own personal professional role. And then my last question is just what are the long-term goals for Win Without Pitching? Uh, the long-term goal for Win Without Pitching is to, to have uh, firms that refuse to pitch and um, try to command the high ground in the relationship, the practitioner high ground, as the norm. We've had, we have somebody who just signed up for the program and said to us uh, – the other day that the reason they're signing up is because all of the firms around them are using this approach and now they feel like the odd one out. <laughs> and that's, I mean, there's not much that you could say to me that would make me feel better than that. Our, our mission is to change the way creative services are bought and sold the world over one firm at a time. That's the long-term goal. Well, I'm excited to see you get there. And so before we say goodbye, Blair, where can listeners go if they want to learn more about you, if they want to hear more of what you have to say, any of that? Where's the best place for people to go to learn more about Win Without Pitching? Uh, winwithoutpitching.com, our website. You can find lots of information there. Uh, I'm Blair Ends on Twitter and LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm a gold-level sponsor of the Shut Your Facebook movement. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but that's where you can find me and learn more about Win Without Pitching. Awesome. I'm going to make sure to get all of that linked up in the show notes. And Blair, I just want to say thanks so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Andy. I really enjoyed it. Blair's five rules for selling digital services aren't complicated, but they fly in the face of the way most agencies operate in reality. First, differentiate or die. Second, choose whether or not you offer productized services or customer services. Don't try to do both. Third, get paid to scope. Fourth, always present your clients with multiple price points. And fifth, Clients want to lease, not buy. 
If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, then you should be familiar with a lot of these rules that players share today, as there are others out there preaching similar messages. But whether it is because of an aversion to conflict, a need to replace a client that unexpectedly left, or whatever, very few agencies out there actually embody these rules. And while these rules may fly in the face of what happens in reality, if we take a step back and look at other industries, it seems like many of us are the crazy ones for not following them. Take a good look at how you handle sales for your agency and see what you can improve to try to shift the balance of power back in your favor. If you're tired of a lack of leads, client horror stories, or low pay, then you owe it to yourself to make a change, and Blair's rules are a great framework to do that. That's all I have for you this week. If you enjoyed the show and learned something, head over to iTunes and leave a review telling me what it was that you learned. I love hearing from listeners, and positive reviews help us grow our audience. So if you could take a second to do that, I'd really appreciate it. And don't forget, if your agency is looking to hire remote contractors or maybe even looking for a few extra projects and are tired of paying huge fees to Upwork, head over to talent.hubstaff.com and create a profile. It's 100% free. All right, I'll talk to you next week. See ya.